Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan and thank you for joining us today. This is week 9 of our Roman Catholicism study and today the topic is going to be the Mass and the Cross. So before we begin we're going to read a few passages of scripture just to make sure we have the proper mindset going into this. Psalm chapter 40 verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm chapter 51, verses 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And then we'll go to verse 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's go to the Catholic understanding of what is Mass. What is the sacrifice of the Mass? From the Church Catechism, paragraph 1265. The sacrifice of the Mass is the true and properly called sacrifice of the new law. It is the sacrifice in which Christ is offered under the species of bread and wine in an unbloody manner. 
The sacrifice of the altar, then, is no mere empty commemoration of the passion or death of Jesus Christ, but a true and proper act of sacrifice. Christ, the eternal high priest, in an unbloody way, offers himself a most acceptable victim to the eternal Father, as he did upon the cross. Remember that word there, victim. We'll come back to that one. Paragraph 1277. The Mass in no way detracts from the one unique sacrifice of the cross, because the Mass is the same sacrifice as that of the cross, to continue on earth until the end of time. Christ not only was the priest who offered himself to his heavenly Father, he is the priest whose intercession for sinful mankind continues. Only now he communicates the graces he had won for us by his bloody passion and death. The Mass, therefore, no less than the cross, is expiatory for sins. But now the expiation is experienced by those for whom on the cross the title of God's mercy had been granted. From the Council of Trent, Session 22, on the Sacrifice of the Mass, Canon 3. If anyone saith that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead, for passions, for sins, for pains, for satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. From the Catechism, paragraph 2180. On Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are bound to participate in the Mass. It's required. From the Catechism 1374 and 1378. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ by genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. In their Bibles, they have some Apocrypha books of the Bible that do not belong in there, but one of the ones that they use is 2 Maccabees. In 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 43 and 46, it says this, Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. Thus, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be freed from sin. Again, this is not in our Bible, but it is in their Bible. Now, they also have a theological church-supported site called catholicstraightanswers.com. And I thought this one was an interesting one to include in here. The question was asked, Why do we offer Masses for the dead, also known as a requiem? And this is what the theologians of the Catholic Church say. The offering of Masses for the repose of the soul of the faithful departed is linked with our belief in purgatory. 
We believe that if a person has died fundamentally believing in God, but with venial sins and the hurt caused by sin, then God in his divine love and mercy will first purify the soul. After this purification has been completed, the soul will have the holiness and purity needed to share with the beatific vision in heaven. While each individual stands in judgment before the Lord upon death and must render an account of his life, the communion of the church shared on this earth continues, except for those souls damned to hell. The Vatican Council, too, affirmed, This sacred council accepts loyally the venerable faith of our ancestors in the living communion which exists between us and our brothers who are in the glory of heaven or who are yet being purified after their death. And this the reference is from the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, number 51. Therefore, just as we now pray for each other, share each other's burdens, and help each other on the path of salvation, the faithful on earth can offer prayers and sacrifices to help the departed souls undergoing purification. And no better prayer could be offered than that of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. When we face the death of someone, even a person who is not Catholic, to have a Mass offered for the repose of his soul and to offer our prayers are more beneficial and comforting than any sympathy card or bouquet of flowers. Most importantly, we should always remember our own dearly departed loved ones in the Holy Mass and through our own prayers and sacrifices help them in their gaining eternal rest. There is a Catholic priest and author whose name is John O'Brien, and he wrote a book a while back called The Faith of Millions. I want you to hear this, see what you think. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim, there it is again, for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. I'm, I'm getting sick just reading this, but let's keep going. Let's understand what the cross is. This is important to know. What exactly is the cross? Now, there is debate on who invented the concept of crucifixion, but history is clear that it was the Persians who, who popularized it for capital punishment. They tied people to the cross. The Romans really liked this, this concept. They perfected it, and then they started nailing people to the cross. Criminals were required to carry their cross, which was about 
between 8 to 12 feet long, and they were to carry it to their own execution site. It was usually made of rough beams of pine wood, and it weighed about 175 pounds. The criminal was then laid on top of the cross, nails inserted into the forearms below the wrist, and one large spike nailed into both ankles. The cross is then hoisted up, dropped into a slotted hole in the ground, and the person stays up there until they die. Depending on their fortitude, it would take hours or even days to die. Given the body's position, when you're mostly hanging from your wrists, you had to push up on your ankles in order to draw breath. You can only imagine how excruciating that is. Many surgeons and anatomists today have gone on record to state that the Roman form of crucifixion is the most painful way to die known to man. And this is modern people saying this. So we know for a very long time that the cross is the ultimate form of earthly punishment for a torture device. So that is what the physical cross is, but what is the significance of it? It's very difficult to imagine how exceedingly painful and miserable crucifixion is for the average person. We read in scripture, though, that Jesus was not a criminal, and he still suffered the same punishment as a criminal. What we absolutely cannot ignore is that Jesus suffered this and an intensely greater dimension of pain, one that no human could ever dream of enduring nor was capable of enduring. In his great love for us, and at the hands of his own Father, he felt the full force of God's wrath against the blackness of our sin. This was the reason that God took the form of man, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and resisted the temptations of avoiding the cross. All to be lifted up upon this instrument of death, taking the sins of the world upon himself, and establishing a direct connection between God and man. Christ is our mediator now, and our advocate before the Father after his resurrection. Understanding this deep truth is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me tell you why the Mass is unbiblical. If you haven't noticed by now, the Mass is unbiblical, and I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures here. So let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read you, it's a little long, but I'm going to read you eight, the first 18 verses of the chapter. It gives you a comprehensive look as to the Mass being completely unnecessary. Verse 1, For the law, since it has only been a shadow of the things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood 
of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, being Christ, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The doctrines held by the Catholic Church on the subject of the Mass are highly concerning and should be seen as heresy, deep heresy. The support and practice of the Mass nullifies several areas of Scripture and completely ignores the all-sufficient act of redemption that our Lord Jesus went through for us. The need to represent Jesus as a sacrifice over and over, it denies his power over sin and death. And it is akin to cultist sacrificial systems that have existed throughout history. If you believe in the Mass, that is deep heresy. If we agree with it, we are stating that his life, death, and resurrection was not enough to redeem us. We are still under the wrath of God unless we complete the Mass. To believe that the work of Jesus was incomplete is a great evil. Lastly, it shows that the Catholic Church fully supports having to work for salvation because you have to go to Mass every Sunday, right? And you have to earn it by completing rituals and good deeds. Simply put, the Jesus of Catholicism is not the same Jesus that we worship. The true Jesus chose us first, loved us first, conquered death, 
and made all things subject to him by dying once for all time, according to the scriptures. Now, where does it say any of this in the Bible? Where can we find answers here? So, one of the references I use for this study is Preparing for Eternity by Mike Gendron, and he said it best. When the doctrine and practice of the Mass is tested against the Word of God, the only standard for measuring truth, we find definite and conclusive misinterpretations, errors, fallacies, and heresies. For example, Jesus was never a victim, as Roman purports, but he went to the cross willingly in humble obedience to the Father, right? He didn't, he wasn't forced on the cross. He had many times he could have backed out. He went willingly. He was not a victim. A victim is someone who something is done to them against their will. He is not a victim. He purposely chose the cross for our sins. Philippians 2.8 being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus said we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, his words were spiritual, and they were not meant to be taken literally. He was using figurative language, as he often did. His disciples were familiar with the figurative phrase, eating and drinking, to describe the appropriation of divine blessings to one's innermost being. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. See, it was literal. it's not literal language. This is figurative language here. John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. See, even Jesus himself makes that distinction, that his words were spiritual, they were not to be taken literally. Sometimes they were, sometimes they were not. But in this case, it's pretty easy to tell when he's being figurative and when he's being literal. John chapter 16, verse 25. 
These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming where I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And that time has already come. He's already spoken plainly about the Father, about himself. Here's the next point. Those who take eating and drinking literally must become cannibals to gain eternal life. Furthermore, consuming blood was forbidden. Those who did were to be cut off. Remember, that was in the Law of Moses. Jesus would not have asked the Jews to break the Law of Moses. This also presents a dilemma. What if a person eats and drinks but does not believe? Or, what if a person believes but does not eat or drink? What does the Bible say about that? Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. For when any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, in hunting, catch a beast or a bird, which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Here's the next point. The alleged change of bread and wine into flesh and blood is not a miracle, but a hoax, because there is no change in appearance, substance, or taste. True biblical miracles were real and observable. And you can look at any of the miracles in the four Gospels. None of them were figurative. None of them were unable to be proven. They were quite obvious. And if a Catholic priest were to say, well, you know, it's not until you eat and drink of it, then it becomes the body of Christ, which is the Holy Eucharist. We'll get to that later. But look at any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see tons of examples how this alleged change of bread into flesh and wine into blood is not real. And it never was. Here's the next point. Rome says the Mass is a bloodless sacrifice, but a sacrifice without blood cannot atone for sins. You see, that was a very important point. God had to shed his blood on the cross for our sins. A bloodless sacrifice does nothing. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a memorial in remembrance. It was not a sacrifice. 
Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So what good is a sacrifice if there's no blood, if the blood is what atones? You see, that is circular logic. It doesn't make any sense. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't say anywhere that he changed it into a different form. It doesn't say that the bread became a piece of his body. It was figurative language, symbolic. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same understanding, right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It all has to match up, right? That's the whole point of the Bible. Everything in the Bible has to match up. Nothing should contradict itself. And this is a clear contradiction. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find priests offering sacrifices for sin or masses for the dead. Catholic priests violate Christ's unique role as mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man the man Christ Jesus. Priests don't mediate for us, nor can they forgive sins. To worship the elements of the Mass is to commit the sin of idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, which you won't even find in their Bible because they changed it, and we'll get to that later. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Mike Gendron also makes a point here saying that he was mindful of Paul's sermon, and so he exhorted all Catholics with similar words. All who fear God must come out and not participate in the sin of idolatry any longer. And listen to what Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 23 through 30. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship is ignorance, and this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And that is our call to Catholics who are now aware of the evil of what they're practicing, to come out of that, to come out and repent and do what is proper, what is biblical. So I hope this helps you. I hope this is a good distinction between what is a church service and what is a mass. There's a humongous difference, as you can see. When we go to church, as a Protestant church, we're going to simply worship the Lord and be obedient to Him by fellowshipping with other believers. We're going to be equipped. We're going to deepen our knowledge and our affection for the Lord by going to church. But the Catholic Mass is a means of trying to keep your salvation. It's a means of sacrificing Christ over and over again on the cross, even though the work has already been done. It's an empty ritual. Not only that, but they also are worshiping those who are dead and praying for those who have died as if you could affect someone else's salvation. We'd already talked about that. Each person is responsible for their own salvation. You can help lead people in the right direction, but you cannot directly intervene in someone's salvation or the purging of their souls because purgatory does not exist. So I hope this is helpful to you and to where there is a widely, a quickly expanding distinction and difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, if you did not know already. There are on the surface, they look very similar, but we are very different. Because by these natures of how Christ is, how God is, it's not the same God we worship. They don't worship the same God as us, because my Christ's work was sufficient on the cross. His grace is sufficient for me, and the gospel is the only thing I need. I don't need all this other stuff these empty rituals. God does not delight in rituals. It's all for show. It's all empty and fake and superficial. We know that God looks at the heart. So let us cleanse our heart towards him today and moving forward, knowing full well that everything we do matters and our intent in doing it matters.
And if we do it for emptiness, we do it for our self-glory, we do it because it's just the right thing to do, then God gets no glory out of it. So submit all to the Lord and follow what he has commanded us to do in his word. Everything that he wants from us is in his word. We just need to find it. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this, and we'll see you next time. I'm Ryan, and have a great day. Take care, and God bless you.